Now at this time I invite you to uh, take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of Mark. I'm excited to begin a new series through the Gospel of Mark. It is a historic occasion in our church because this is the first time that I've preached through a gospel. And I assume it's been the first time you've heard one preached verse by verse in a long time at least. So I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 1 and let me read verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him. And all the people of Jerusalem, and they were getting ready, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I am. And I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word this morning. There are many ways that we have come to view who Jesus was. Some are biblical, some are not. Because the ones that are not have misleading connotations. Rather than listing what those misleading connotations are, mainly for the sake of time this morning, let's just consider how the Bible paints the picture of Jesus and use that as the standard to judge the other ones. Here are some biblical views of Jesus. He was the Son of God. He was the Son of Man. He was the Savior of men. He was the Son of David. He was the Word, or the Logos, the Greek way to say it. He was the Anointed One, which is just the translation of the Hebrew word Messiah and the Greek word Christ, which are just transliterations of the same word meaning anointed. Jesus is referred to as the king of the Jews on three occasions, and on numerous occasions, he is called Lord or Master of his slaves. All of those titles speak to the core identity of Jesus. And I'm sure you've heard most of them before, if not all, many times, but... There's another way to view who Jesus was. Jesus was a servant. That's the primary focus of Mark. He zeroes in on the deeds of Jesus. The ministry of Christ is emphasized more than his teaching in this gospel. During the next several months, through a verse by verse explanation of the Gospel of Mark, 
We are, we are all going to get a clearer view of Jesus as the suffering servant. And you will see how that truth of understanding that Jesus was a suffering servant will shape and form our identity as a local church and your identity as an individual believer. If we are all to be like Christ, which is the Sunday school way to explain sanctification, right? We are all striving and working hard to become more like Jesus. And if we all really believe that, then we at SVC will, SVBC will ultimately become a servant-minded body of saints. And I'll go a step further. If Christ was a servant, then it should go without saying that you are intended to be a lifelong servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are, as Paul puts it in Romans 8, predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And that means you are to be a servant. Jesus came to serve and not to be served. Now, to set the stage for a proper understanding of this gospel and to understand it as precisely as possible, keep in mind as we traverse through each chapter who the audience originally was. The writer of Mark targets a Gentile audience, especially Roman. In other words, the content of Mark was initially received and read by a group of people who were from a pagan background with little to no knowledge of who Yahweh is. How many of you came to Christ genuinely later in life as an adult? So you can relate to this book very well because if you got saved later in life, you were part of a pagan religion. And for those who have not been generally born again, even though they may come to church, they are still delved into a pagan religion. So that is why, as opposed to Mark's, excuse me, Matthew's gospel, for example, there are fewer Old Testament references in addition to carefully explained Jewish customs, such as the parenthetical references we find in chapter 7. Verses 3 and 4. The Gentile audience also explains the brevity of Mark, comprising of only 16 chapters and omitting the genealogies of Jesus, as well as other material that would be of pertinent or particular interest to Jewish readers. And so the gospel set before us is known as the gospel of action, because it focuses on the service of Jesus as the narrative moves rapidly from one scene to the next, with the frequent use of immediately and then. Now, a few remarks about the author. The author of the Gospel of Mark is a guy named Mark. Profound, right? But one thing that most of you might not know is Mark is also John in the book of Acts. He was the cousin of Barnabas which is a name meaning son of encouragement. Mark, or John, 
as he's known in the book of Acts, accompanied Barnabas and Paul on a part of their first missionary journey. But then Mark abandoned them. For whatever reason, we don't know. The Scripture doesn't tell us. And that abandonment resulted in Paul refusing to take Mark along with him on his second missionary journey because he abandoned him in the first time. So why would you bring somebody along with you when they're probably just going to leave again? And so Paul, being a chosen apostle, made the judgment, Mark ain't coming. And he was right in making that decision. And that unfortunate division led to a division between Paul and Barnabas. And so that's significant. Because we learn about the character of Mark, who he was. He wasn't faithful. He wasn't submissive. He wasn't courageous. But something happened later in his life that changed him. And he ended up being one of the instruments that God wrote, God used to write one of the Gospels. Later, Mark was restored with Paul. And not only did he write the Gospel of Mark, he also became a very close associate of Peter. And that's why Mark, John Mark, was able and qualified to write an inspired book of the Bible. Because he was a close associate of Peter, whom he got this information from. So now I've told you the overarching theme or purpose of Mark, which is to present Jesus as what? Servants. And now I've told you who the audience is. Gentile Romans. And the author is John Mark. But by way of introduction, listen to another key theme that kind of just falls under the primary theme of Jesus as suffering servants, which I think you'll find helpful. Another key theme is Jesus' humanity. More than any other gospel in the Bible, Mark highlights Christ's human emotions, his human limitations, and other small details that highlight the human side of the Son of God. And now why is it significant? A little bit of theology here. Why is it significant for you to understand the humanity of Jesus. First of all, if Jesus is not human, then he was not qualified to be our substitute. In order to die in the place of men, he had to be a man. Second of all, we understand, when we understand how human Jesus was, on a practical level, we can see the depth of his empathy with us. He was a man, so he experienced, the Bible tells us, the same temptations we wrestle with daily. And so I trust that by studying this book together, you will see the person of Christ more clearly, which will cause you to become more like him as you are being sanctified by the Spirit through the Word. The entire first ten chapters focuses on Jesus' ministry or his service in Galilee and the surrounding regions. And then the remaining six chapters focus on his ministry in Jerusalem, culminating in his death. 
So on our journey through this book of Mark, we're going to start before Jesus. We start before the beginning with the greatest man that was ever born. Which is what I've entitled the message today. The greatest man ever born. And when I first heard that, I was like, what? Someone other than Jesus was the greatest man to ever been born? Well, yes, because Jesus said so. We'll see that in a second. So prior to discussing this greatest man ever born, Mark introduces what this entire book is about. He sets it apart. He reveals the main idea or the main subject. Look at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. With these words, we discover that the evangelist's main goal in writing is to make known to his readers the one chief thing. The good news of Jesus Christ. And most of you have probably heard this too. The gospel means... Good news, right? You guys heard that before. The gospel literally means good news. It comes from the Greek word euangelion, from which we get the word evangelist and evangelical. And I want to point out one specific nuance about the word gospel that's commonly overlooked. We focus on the good part, and that's good. But think about the implication of the word news. It implies that it must be communicated with words, doesn't it? Either in writing or in verbal form. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not something that can be lived out. Because you can't live the news. You must speak the news so that people can be informed. You know, if you turn on the evening news, which I recommend you do sparingly, especially if you like CNN, you will never find a reporter sitting there on his chair living out the reports. Right? They verbalize it. Just like the news anchors, an evangelist, which is what Mark is, simply communicates the good news of Jesus with clarity. The good news that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many was never intended to be like a game of charades. It's meant to be heralded just like John the Baptist demonstrates for us. Notice at the end of verse 1, we see a title that is attributed to Jesus that deserves some attention. The Son of God. Now we gloss over that when we see it. Let me remind you of its meaning. It's a title that's intended to convey the nature of the person of Jesus, his deity. Jesus the Messiah is one in nature with God the Father, co-eternal, co-equal. And Mark wants to get that strong point across because, let me pause for a second. You hear me say that and it's like yawn. I've heard that already. But again, when you study the Bible, every time you study the Bible, take yourself out of your shoes and put yourself 
into the shoes of its original audience. So pretend you are a first century Roman slave or carpenter. And you get this this parchment from this guy named Mark who says he represents a guy named Jesus. And you read this son of God. And you either are going to be fanatically angry or you're going to be humbled beyond words. Because if you're a Roman, you were trained to think that Caesar is God. And to say that this man named Jesus is the Son of God was blasphemy and it was a capital punishment. So that phrase, Son of God, was fighting words. Mark wants to get that point across. That's how he starts. He wants his readers, his Roman readers, to understand that Caesar is not your God and his children are not. Christ. Jesus of Nazareth is the true divine king. He alone, therefore, has the right to rule. And after presenting this bold assertion, Mark is going to spill plenty of ink to show that Jesus is the promised king, the son of God, the savior of the world. Now we're ready to rock and roll. It's all about Jesus, the son of God, one with God the Father, whom, by the way, is your true king. Now listen. The stage is set. Chapter 1, verse 2 through chapter 16 is all about the euangelion, the good news of Jesus. We see in chapters, chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, where the gospel begins. It begins before Jesus even arrives on the scene. It begins with a hairy, bug-eating, leather-wearing, courageous, and bold preacher named John. John the Baptist, whom you have heard, is known as the forerunner of Jesus Christ. For, meaning before, runner means he's going ahead of him. Jesus himself called John the Baptist the greatest man born among women. Listen to Matthew 11.11. Jesus said, truly I say to you, among those born among women, or born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Straight from the mouth of Jesus. Now why? Why would our Lord, the Son of God, call this obscure, weird, wilderness man, mountain man, the greatest Why not Abraham with his great faith? Why not Job with his astounding endurance? He's pretty great, don't you think? To go through all that Job went through and still profess faith and make it to the end? Why not David with his steadfast devotion to Yahweh? Why not Solomon with all his wisdom? Why not Daniel? Daniel's pretty great, don't you think? He had fearless courage to defend the truth in the face of powerful tyranny. And he calmly stood in the lion's den. When I go to the zoo and I see a lion within 20 feet of me, I, I get a little antsy. 
But Daniel stood there with courage because he, he knew Yahweh was going to protect him. That's courage. Why not, why not any of those titans of the faith? How come they're not considered the greatest man born among women? Well, the answer lies in the fact that John had the greatest ministry in history. He bore direct witness of the Messiah in the day of the Messiah. That is to say, he was the shining testimony that pointed people to the long-awaited Savior of the elect. And there is no greater ministry than to point sinners to the place of salvation. There's no greater calling. There is no greater ministry. And that is what John did. That's why he was the greatest among men. After 400 years of silence following Malachi, John was the first prophetic voice to be raised. He was a powerful voice, and he was the messenger of God, bringing a message of salvation to the people it was promised to. This is where the Gospel of Mark begins. It starts with the prophetic voice of John the Baptist in the wilderness, preparing the way of the coming of the Lord. The Gospel of Mark does not begin with the birth of Christ, as does Matthew and Luke. It does not begin with Christ in eternity past, as the Gospel of John does. Rather, the Gospel of Mark alone begins in a rugged place, way out in the middle of nowhere with a preacher affectionately called John the Baptizer. This is why I love the Gospel of Mark. This is one reason why I chose to go with Mark. It all begins with a poor, destitute, unpopular, unconventional man who is despised by the religious establishment Preaching unapologetically and unafraid of the public. That's where it begins. As we consider these opening eight verses, there are five aspects of John the Baptist's life that I want you to note this morning. John's calling, John's ministry, John's impact, John's holiness, and John's humility. Now, I believe that by gaining a better understanding of John's role in the grand story of redemption, we can find a good example for the church to follow today. I want us to follow John's example. What are we going to do? First, consider John's calling in verses 2 and 3. To summarize, it's revealed that John was predestined to be a preacher. John was predestined to be a preacher. Look at verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, he begins. Now what's compelling about verses 2 and 3 is that Mark starts by writing new revelation appealing to old revelation. 
He begins by writing immediately. We're immediately quoting the inspired word of God. Not from one, but two Old Testament prophets. First Malachi, then Isaiah. John's appearance is a direct fulfillment of what was foretold centuries beforehand. And Mark wants us to know this is the case because it validated what John was doing. In other words, John wasn't just some strange wacko dipping people in Jordan River. Yahweh, through his chosen mouthpieces, told Israel John was coming. And so they should have recognized him when they saw him because the prophecy was so clear. Again, Mark starts by appealing to Scripture. In verse 2 it says, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. This is a quote from Malachi 3 verse 1. And the Lord Jesus himself declared this passage to refer to John the Baptist. As we see in Mark 11, excuse me, Matthew 11 and Luke 7. John was sent by God ahead of the Messiah as a royal messenger to prepare the way for the divine king's arrival. Such preparation came through verbal proclamation. In ancient times, a king's ambassador would travel ahead of him, making sure the roads were safe and fit for him to travel on, as well as announcing his arrival. Now, though we don't have kings in our culture, we don't see heralds or ambassadors constantly going through our streets preparing the way. But this practice is still very much mirrored in our government and in our military. I know because I've seen it. Recently, a two-star general came to visit the Air Force Base. And that's pretty high up, if you don't know the military rank structure. And though he couldn't possibly make all the rounds on that weekend, he was escorted by a fairly large entourage by junior and senior officers to all the different units, all different groups of people scattered throughout the base. One of the officers was responsible for walking ahead of the general before he arrived to his next destination to meet and greet the men and women he commanded. And without a doubt, I knew that one of the chaplains, excuse me, one of the generals stops along his way, though very busy, would be a stop at the chaplain's office. And so my boss told me to go ahead and be on the lookout, let me know if you hear he's coming, or make sure your office is all tidy and your uniform's all squared away. And sure enough, about midday, a lady who was a familiar face bolted into our office and said the general is about to make his way over here. So we sprung up from our desk, and waited to hear someone yell a ten hut. Sure enough, we heard that. He walks in our office. We stand at attention. He says, at ease, and we shake his hand. Great to meet you, sir. What would you like to see? So in a very similar way, that's what John the Baptist did for Jesus. 
He came to his people. He said, get ready. Clear the path. But not only that, make sure you are found to be presentable. Just like that Air Force officer who walked ahead of the general to make sure everything was clean and presentable. And everyone was in the right frame of mind to receive their commander. John the Baptist functioned in a similar way. Now, verse 3 tells us precisely how he prepared the way. Don't you love how Scripture is so precise? Look at verse 3. It doesn't just say John appeared and he was a fulfillment of Scripture. Mark lays it out there for us. He was the voice crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. This is a reference to Isaiah 40, verse 3. And it expands on the manner in which John was called to carry out his mission of making the road ready. Unlike the forerunner of the earthly king who was charged with removing debris from the path and warning people of the king's arrival, John sought to remove obstacles of stubborn unbelief from the hearts and minds of sinners by crying in the wilderness. Crying. The one way that God predestined his chosen servant to prepare the way of Jesus, listen, did not come through the soft, tone of a finely tuned, flashy, educated, winsome, popular, elected clergyman. It was through a brief, simple, authoritative sermon from the mouth of a rugged, rough, destitute prophet. He passionately loudly announced to all within earshot to make ready the way of the Lord. This is where the gospel starts. The way of the Lord. It's the way of repentance, of turning from sin to righteousness, and of turning spiritual paths that are crooked into straight ones. That's what John cried. Now, what can we learn from John the Baptist's preordained calling? Well, first and foremost, we are once again graciously reminded of God's faithfulness. After 400 years of silence, John comes into into the world as a fulfillment of prophecy, which is a loud and clear proof that God kept his promise to send the forerunner. And if God was going to keep his promise to send the forerunner, he was going to keep his promise to send the Savior, right? And for us, if we know that John came and Jesus came, that implies that we can very much rely and trust on the unfulfilled prophecies, right? Now, what does that mean for us? Jesus is coming, right? And here's what I want to help you understand. Just like every officer and enlisted person 
was eagerly petrified to be found by the general slacking off and lacking military bearing, how much more should I and you be petrified of Christ your king coming when you know he's coming to find you unprepared and slacking off and not doing what he has called you to do. That's what we learned from John the Baptist calling. The second aspect of Mark reveals John's ministry. The second aspect Mark reveals about the life of John is his ministry. Verses calling, now his ministry. Verse 4. We don't only learn that John was determined by God before his birth to be a crier in the wilderness. We also learn that he was a preacher of the gospel. Look at verse 4. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching. Now, in case you missed last week or in case you forgot, right, we learn by repetition, right? Repetition is the mother of all learning. I want to point out again the meaning of this Greek word that's commonly translated as preaching. Because it has a present and weighty implication for our church and every other church for that matter. The work of preaching, listen, is the main responsibility of the pastor, elder, or shepherd, or whatever you want to call him. In, in 2 Timothy 2, 4, verse 2, Paul commands young pastor Timothy to preach the word. And what does he say? In season and out. That means the young pastor... At a brand new church, it's just keep on preaching. When it's popular, when it's not. When 25 people show up, when 85 people show up. The preacher keeps on preaching. When people want to hear it and when they don't. When it's popular and when it's not. That is what God prescribed through Paul for the pastor to do. Now listen. Paul used the same word for preaching in 2 Timothy 4.2, which is the preacher's marching orders. He used the same word that Mark used to describe the ministry of John the Baptist. So it's vital for you to understand, brothers and sisters, the relationship between true gospel ministry and biblical preaching which is a word, again, it's defined as to herald, to proclaim or announce publicly. The two are seamlessly intertwined, gospel ministry that is, and biblical preaching, heralding. The very meaning of the original word implies that the manner and style, to some degree, In which the preacher preaches. It, imp- it implies the manner and the style. Like a herald who publicly announces a message from the king, the preacher stands before an audience for one reason only. You know why I preach? You want to know why I don't quit? 
Because I'm here to proclaim the king's message. No matter what. I am here to proclaim it with authority. Because the message carries authority, not me. The message that I speak. It's the king's message. Not mine. And so that's why Aaron and I strive to model our content and style after men like John the Baptist. His preaching ministry was profound and theological, which we'll see in a second. Yet it's simple and straightforward. John the Baptist's preaching was sometimes hard and harsh, yet compelling and captivated. Captivating. His preaching was loud and clear. I mean, he was a crier, for goodness sake. I could get a lot louder, but then I don't want you guys to come here with earplugs. Yet for the non-elect, I could preach as loud as I could, clear as I could, winsomely as I could, passionately as I could. But for the non-elect, all preaching falls on deaf ears, and it confounds the darkened mind. Which I think that's a barometer for good preaching, don't you? For the elect, they love it. They want more. It feeds them because it convicts them, it encourages them, or it instructs them, causing sanctification. For not elect, and they get mad. They get mad, they're confused, and they hate it. And if it wasn't for John the Baptist, if it wasn't for my knowledge of the ministry of Jesus and the apostles and the reformers and my friends and brothers around the world, I couldn't bear this work. Because it's lonely. It's hard. A lot of people don't like it. But I'm bound by my conscience model my preaching after John's. John modeled biblical preaching. As we see from these opening verses of Mark, the story of the good news begins with preaching. But listen to this. It's a sermon on something specific. Theological. The baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There are at least four major doctrines in that verse. I'm going to go through each one right now in depth. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not time for that. But I do want to touch on a couple. First of all, what is this baptism? What is baptism here in this context? Well, it was similar yet distinguished from the Jewish practice that paralleled the one-time washing of Gentile proselytes. Pagans who turned from their dead religion to the true and living God were required 
to participate in a rite that symbolized their rejection of their paganism and an acceptance of the truth. The Jewish ceremony was the mark of an outsider's becoming of God's chosen people, becoming a part of the covenant. So, this act of baptizing or immersing of new converts and water was nothing new. It was already taking place as a Jewish custom. But John's call for Jews to be baptized was radical and shocking because it was offensive. Now, I don't like to use that term radical loosely because it's starting to become a cliche word. But it was. In essence, John was saying, you covenant-keeping Jews with your religious garb and your meticulous attention to the law, you need to be baptized. You need to publicly announce that you need to have your sins forgiven. This meant that being a physical descendant of Abraham got you nowhere. And it meant that being a religious observer of the rabbinical laws were worthless. Hence, the Hebrews' ethnicity and morality were utterly worthless when it came to being in a right standing before God. Now, we understand this, don't we? I mean, I do. Have you ever met somebody who's been at church for 30, 40, 50 years? And through their conduct and through their understanding of the gospel, you realize they don't know the Lord. And you, you beg them and you explain the gospel and you try to have a discussion about it. But then they either get mad or they don't want nothing to do with it. One of my friends met a old lady at the grocery store recently. She had her children with her, and she was just there shopping. And this lady came up to, this, to my friend and said, I just want to give you this, this, this money. I'm dying soon. I have no kids of my own. Here's some money. Your kids are lovely. They're beautiful. Take it. And so my friend graciously accepted the, the, the kind gift. And because she is a motivated and well-educated evangelist, she took the opportunity to talk to the woman about the Lord. Because the, this woman had, had admitted that she was sick. I can't remember what she had, but she was getting ready to pass away. And so in the discussion, this gospel conversation, it was evident, it became evident that this woman was trusting in her own Morality. You know the typical response, I'm a good person and God will let me into heaven because I'm so good. Right? But since you come to this church, you know that doesn't fly. Because I'm passionate about I'm passionate about sola fide, faith alone, right? And very quickly, this pleasant, wonderful greeting between perfect strangers became not so pleasant. The old lady that gave her the money wanted nothing to do with her after that. And I was curious to know if she wanted the money back, but I, I didn't have the courage to ask. But you see, 
John preaching the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins was like you and I preaching the gospel to a false convert who's been going to church for decades. It's offensive. It's confounding. It doesn't make sense. And it's very hard to minister to somebody who is enslaved to religious lie because they're so powerful. So, you could see that John the Baptist could be counted as the first nonconformist or one of the first true reformers. Before Jesus came along, he was already beginning to reform and confront the spiritual problems of first century Judaism. So, he preached that they had to reject what they were taught and what they practiced. And he stood alone with the audacity to demand that everyone repent for the forgiveness of sins. Now, repentance. You should be very familiar with this term because I spent four weeks showing you from Psalm 51 all the facets of godly repentance, right? But to go a little bit deeper, understand that biblical repentance is, by definition, an internal change of the person's heart, mind, and will. An internal change of the person's mind, heart, and will. Therefore, it implies a genuine turning from sin and self to God. You've probably heard quite a bit that repentance is to turn away from sin, right? And that's true. But before you get to the turning part, your mind has to be changed. Literally, repentance is a change of mind. And it involves a transformation of the nature which makes it what? Who can change the nature of men? God, right? Repentance is a gift of God. Acts 11.18, 2 Timothy 2.25. And therefore, it is inseparably linked to saving faith. Another nuance of biblical repentance is that the fruit of it is seen in a changed behavior. John the Baptist told the crowds in Luke 3 and Matthew 3 bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That means that the result of repentance is obedience. The result of repentance is godly pursuits and desires. You know, in a day and age when it's cool and popular to say, who am I to judge? That's between you and God. It's no wonder why there are so few preachers who will publicly preach that everyone must repent. Not only that, that's the easy part, right? Anybody can say, hey, you know, I'm just quoting the Bible. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will perish. We find that easier. But then when we say the Bible also says that there's supposed to be fruit. And, brother, I don't see that fruit in your life. That's where, like, no way. <laughs> I'm not the judge. Brothers and sisters, it's, it's very loving if you do it in the right way. To talk to your friends who profess Christ that do not show this fruit. Fruit in keeping with repentance. You can start with the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Now, real quick before I conclude today. I, I'm compelled to tackle 
a little bit about this controversial issue of baptism. Another caveat that should be evidenced, other than spiritual fruit, is that true repentance precedes a willingness to be baptized. And listen, the meaning of baptized is to dip or to immerse. It does not mean sprinkle. It does not mean to dip. And the New Testament usage does not even imply that baptism is for anyone else except for the one whom has been granted the gift of faith and repentance. Which begs the question, how can a newborn infant express a change of mind? How can a newborn infant experience the volitional action to say, I want to get dunked. They can't, right? That's why, to me, this issue of baptism is so clear. It's so easy. Even my Pado-Baptist friends, my Presbyterian friends, they'll admit in the New Testament it's hard to find. Even they admit that. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to go deep into the paedo-baptism versus credo-baptism argument. But I just want you to see that the word baptism, baptist, to be baptized, literally means to dip or immerse. And John is saying that baptism comes after repentance, which is granted to you by God, resulting in a change of mind and a demonstration of that change. So, Mark says that this baptism of repentance results in the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. It is the only way to experience true forgiveness by God, which is what we all need, right? So in the beginning of this gospel of Jesus Christ, according to Mark, we've been introduced to John the Baptist's calling. He was set apart before birth and called to be the forerunner of the Messiah. We've also been introduced to John the Baptist's ministry. We see that his calling was fulfilled by going out and preaching all that people must experience to be saved. He preached that all must experience a true change of heart and be baptized. Now, I would be a horrible Baptist preacher if I didn't ask you if there was anyone here that has not been baptized yet. You'd be surprised to go into a church and find folks who either unwittingly or sometimes willfully refuse to be immersed. And so, if you need to be baptized by immersion, I'm here to help you with that. We can arrange it. So please come talk to me afterwards. But I would be even a worse preacher of the cross 
if I fail to ask you if you have ever experienced this true interchange of the hearts. Have you ever experienced repentance? The initial change of mind that forces you to turn from sin and turn to a living God. If you have, then praise God for giving you that gift. If not, I stand here as the post-runner, not the forerunner. I stand here as the post-runner of Jesus in the same spirit as, as John the Baptist. If you haven't experienced this true change of the mind, then repent. Because if you refuse to repent from your sin and turn to a living Christ, then the Word of God reveals that when He returns, He will bring retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the Gospel. And if you're not sure, if you've ever experienced this repentance that John preached, then examine the fruit in your life and in your thinking and decide or not, decide whether or not you find fruit of the flesh or fruit of the Spirit. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have given me the wonderful calling and privilege to proclaim your word. Give me the strength and the energy and the perseverance to keep on preaching as you told Timothy so long ago. May the precious sheep here at SV Bible Church embrace and understand that the work of preaching involves all you have revealed. You sent John ahead of Christ to cry out loudly to everyone that needed to prepare. They needed to prepare their hearts for the coming of the Lord and to repent to change their mind for forgiveness of sins and then be baptized. Help us, Lord, to be bold and courageous and patient as we await your arrival. And in the meantime, may we work tirelessly to be proclaimers of the truth. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.